Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Fascism comes to America, it will be wrapped in a flag and carrying a cross. Sinclair Lewis. Or, fascism will come, quote, wrapped up in the American flag and heralded as a plea for liberty and preservation of the Constitution. James Waterman Wise. Donald Trump's decision in 2020 to get the cops to tear gas a bunch of nonviolent protesters in order to have a photo op at a church with an upside-down Bible he's clearly never read was comically on point. It was the kind of thing that, as I watched it, felt so outrageously fascist in its ethos that it felt like he was just trying to win a bet with someone. He infamously said, I could shoot somebody in broad daylight on Fifth Avenue and not lose a vote. And perhaps someone said, I'll take that bet. Trump got more votes in 2020 than he did in 2016. Do not look for them to raise aloft the swastika, warned Wise. The American flag will do just fine, as will an upside-down Bible. We did not descend into fascism in 2020 or 2021, in part because Trump's attempts to overturn the election and remain in power were also comically inept and backed by incompetent people. Just because he failed didn't mean we weren't close to the brink. Just because he failed did not mean that he did not try, that he did not have support. The United States had a brush with fascism, and it happened because too many people stood by and watched, and far, far too many people felt like what was going on was just fine. So far, the consequences for the attempted coup have been frustratingly few. The U.S. has not shown that it has the teeth to push back when a wannabe dictator is not unpopular, and so very little has happened. Unfortunately, nearly all dictators rise to power on popularity. The United States is not immune to fascism, and we cannot depend on contrast with fascist Europe to know that we are not on such a path. The leader of Spain's fascists, Jose Antonio Primo de Rivera, when building the formula for fascism in Spain, said the following, quote, Italy and Germany turned back towards their own authenticity, and if we do so ourselves, the authenticity which we find will also be our own. It will not be that of Germany or Italy, and therefore, by reproducing the achievement of the Italians or Germans, we will become more Spanish than we have ever been. In fascism, as in movements of all ages, underneath the local characteristics, there are to be found certain constants. What is needed is a total feeling of what is required, a total feeling for the fatherland, for life, for history. 
In this bone-chillingly spooky Halloween episode, we won't cover how Trump almost brought fascism to the United States. Instead, we'll explore America's terrifying brush with fascism in the 1930s as a stark reminder. Democracy is vulnerable. It requires vigilance and civic education and true patriotic spirit. When these are in decline, fascism can sneak in the unguarded doors of our minds. Wrapped in a flag and carrying whatever the cross of the day is, if fascism comes to America, it will come to rapturous applause. Here on Reconsider, we have shown many times that violent internal division, street violence, and chaos have led again and again to the rise of dictators, each of whom was cheered into office by those desperate for peace and stability. This is true of Caesar, it is true of Napoleon, of Hitler and Mussolini, to some extent it is true of Lenin, and very much it is true of Mao. Each came to power during times of great division and violence internally. Innocent people were dying, and they, not unfairly, wanted a powerful hand to fix things. Not all of the violence that dictators saw was street violence. In the case of Caesar, a lot of it was a true civil war. In the case of Lenin, it was a war from without. The Germans were very close to Petrograd at the time. But violence played a major part on the rise of each of these dictators, as did internal divisions as did hyper-partisanship. Today, we see political violence and division seeming to be on the rise in the United States and elsewhere. The occupations in Portland and Seattle, the Charlottesville white nationalist rally, the storming of the Capitol, the plot to kidnap governor of Michigan Megan Whitmer and dispense mob justice for her so-called treason, and the attempt by President Trump to stay in power despite losing the election and simply lying about it, these events should make you afraid. You'd be justified in being afraid for the future of the United States. I am afraid for the future of the United States. The question is how long will normal Americans tolerate such behavior before they too ask for a strong hand to keep them safe and restore order? Today, you cannot claim to be a fascist. You cannot claim to be bringing fascism to America. The word is political poison, as is communist. But this is just a marketing problem. We could see fascism in another name. We could see fascism in the name of liberty, in the name of democracy, in the name of preserving the United States. It would just be called something different. We've seen plenty of great fiction over the past century demonstrating the power of words to warp concepts in our minds. But in the 1930s, fascism was still in vogue. Fascism was not a dirty word yet. And so we talked about it much more openly. I lived in the city of Boston for 15 years. Downtown on State Street, the post office building there stands as this huge concrete monument. It has an, these intimidating vertical lines and art deco eagles on top. It has small windows. It's heavy and oppressive, at least to me. It looks suspiciously like it came from fascist Italy. And in a way, it did. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, whose Depression-era initiatives led to the construction of this post office, was very fond of Italy's fascist architecture. He was, at times, fond of Italy's fascist government. This is not to say that FDR was a fascist, although he certainly was at times tyrannical, and we will discuss this. But that building and many others, that architecture, was a nod to a system of government that was very tempting and openly discussed in intellectual salons throughout the West, before the Second World War demonstrated fascism's tendency to destroy within and without. 
In the 1930s, Charles Lindbergh's wife published a best-selling book calling totalitarianism, quote, an ultimately good conception of humanity. Charles Lindbergh himself, who was a very popular figure in the United States at the time, accused Jews of being war agitators. He cautioned against, quote, the infiltration of inferior blood and, quote, dilution by foreign races. He was a Nazi, and he was a popular one. In the 1930s, nearly 20% of Americans saw Jews as a, quote, national menace. The president of the American Political Science Association, who creates journals that I, as a political scientist, have read for decades, called for abolishing universal suffrage and said, quote, there is a large element of fascist doctrine that we must appropriate, end quote. Discussing fascism openly had become mainstream, including some of the really awful, scary Nazi elements of it. British historian Arnold Toynbee later wrote, quote, in 1931, men and women all over the world were seriously contemplating and frankly discussing the possibility that the Western system of society might break down and cease to work, end quote. Before the war, fascism was openly popular in the United States. People thought it was a, quote, rational way to organize society, much like state-planned socialism. Fascism's racist overtones were accepted as within the Overton window as well. The Klan, the Ku Klux Klan, expanded membership and rallied openly. By the time the Second World War started, over 100 white nationalist organizations had been formed in the United States in that decade alone. Why? Why did this happen? One thing that the rise of fascism and state-run socialism had in common across Europe was economic chaos and depression. People were hungry and needed a solution. They felt that divided legislatures in liberal governments could not act decisively enough to deal with the economic crisis. Americans were grappling with corruption, monopoly, inequality, political violence, racism, unemployment, and literal starvation. Americans were afraid and in pain, and many felt like it didn't have to be that way. They looked across the ocean. Germany's economic turnaround, however real it may or may not have been, from hyperinflation and long breadlines into an industrial powerhouse gave it many admirers, including those in the United States, still in the middle of a depression, looking across the sea to a system that seemed to be working much better. And when the U.S. economy seemed to finally recover during the war, when government had nationalized the economy nearly entirely, some argued that maybe it should just stay that way. Maybe the government should just run society. Maybe the government should run the economy and tell people where they're going to work and tell people what they're going to eat. It seemed to work. In the middle of the Great Depression, the president commanded incredible power and fought the Supreme Court for more. And Roosevelt tried to dismantle and pack said court when it pushed back too hard on his designs. Americans clamored for this. Americans clamored for FDR to have more power to help them as a single individual. FDR strong-armed corporations and broke them up. He built federal agencies with power far beyond what anyone had conceived the Constitution to allow until that point. These moves were extremely popular because they put people to work, they put bread on tables, they built infrastructure. FDR exercising extra-constitutional power gave people hope, and hungry people tend not to quibble too much over whether the bread they receive is constitutionally given. Americans also looked across to Germany and saw that it had finally silenced years and years of terrible street fighting. The fear that the average German felt from communists and brown shirts, yes, the very fascists that they later embraced, taking over the streets with violence cannot be underestimated. In the United States, that street fighting was largely absent, and it may have been a large part of why Americans clung on to liberal institutions and democracy. Fascism wrapped in flag, history, 
culture, race, and religion also seem to bulwark against a globalist, atheistic, and anti-nationalist international communism, which seem to be trying to eat the entire world. Democracies seem too weak to fight it. Frank Buckman, a popular Christian activist, said, quote, I thank heaven for a man like Adolf Hitler, who built a front line of defense against the Antichrist of communism, end quote. And could these conditions be repeated in the United States today? Certainly. The U.S. economy is in an odd place as of 2021, but it is so debt-laden that it could seriously risk falling into a lasting depression and inflation. We look across the other sea now to a rising fascist state in China whose economy seems to be unstoppable and its success inevitable. Some wonder whether the Chinese are onto something over there, even if it does mean that rights need to be abandoned and some humans need to be ground into meat by the state, if some cultures need to be sent to genocide in order to have the harmony required to lead to lasting growth and lasting economic functionality. We certainly have a resurgence of nationalist and racist rhetoric and thinking in the United States, and we have Americans who are very willing to abandon their past principles to support a strongman in the hopes of making the country great again. Donald Trump was not popular enough in 2020 to win a second term, and his bumbling attempts to overturn the election failed, but they did not dissuade his supporters. These efforts have left lasting wounds in our democratic institutions that we may not be able to heal from. Seven in 10 Republicans believe the election was not legitimate, despite a complete lack of evidence to the contrary. The election being stolen is the big lie, and it is a convenient lie. And Republicans who want to believe it will cling on to it in order to attempt to defeat their dreaded enemy, the Democrats, the leftists. Some on the left, while not blatantly pretending such untruths as a stolen election, have been questioning the legitimacy of the Electoral College, the Supreme Court, the makeup of the Senate, and the districting process that elects the House. Americans, whether justified or not, are losing faith in and support for our democratic liberal institutions. These institutions seem creaky and ineffective at best. Many believe that their primary role is to support the accumulation of power and wealth for the wealthy and powerful. Others see the entirely avoidable brinksmanship in the Senate over the debt ceiling and wonder how long before political games and incompetence lead to economic collapse. And if that does occur, if the Senate doesn't kumbaya in December when the debt ceiling comes up again and the United States defaults, for the first time ever, defaults on its payments. An economic depression, which would be inevitable at that point, comes roaring in. Will Americans across the political spectrum conclude that the self-destructive ineptitude of such an organization require a strong hand to come in and, perhaps just temporarily, fix things by fiat? Might this be tempting as the U.S. economy drops like a stone for entirely avoidable reasons because a hundred politicians could not work together. What if enough Americans conclude the Supreme Court has already become tyrannical and overly politicized? What if enough Americans believe the Constitution is too rigid and preventing necessary reform? What if enough Americans believe that gerrymandering and the makeup of the Senate as a whole mean that minority rule will continue indefinitely, that the few will govern the many? What if some Americans believe in one failure mode, and others believe in another failure mode, and both fear each other putting their strongman in charge. In the 1930s, fascism became mainstream in America. Luckily for us, we had to fight a war against fascists. But this time, 
There are no fascists to fight a war against. There is no outgroup to hate. There is no one that we see tromping through Europe, burning it down to let us know that we should not go down this path of totalitarianism, of strong men, of a strong state. It seems like a strong state led by a strong man may be able to save us. Fascism becoming mainstream could happen again, just under a different name, better marketing. Will we be able to defend against it this time? If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information, and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash acast. As a core to this episode, I want to ask sort of what's the point, right? I think we've done a lot of bandying about over the past couple decades of one part or the other largely representing uh, the totalitarian aspect of the United States. And it's very easy to sort of like point over at the Republicans right now and say, like, well, it's sounding pretty fascist. And what I worry about a little bit is the kind of like weird one-sided obsessions that each party has um, with one form of totalitarianism, right? So the right is terrified that the United States is going to become communist, and the left is terrified that the United States is going to become fascist. And the point is not that there isn't anything to worry about. The point is that worrying about only one of these forms of totalitarianism is a bit silly, right? We've shown a few times and reconsider that the flavor of totalitarianism doesn't really matter all that much. Both communism and fascism are brutally repressive, uh, they bring the economy and all of society under the state and party. That's what totalitarianism is. They crush freedom of thought. Um, they both have secret police, right? We talk about secret police being a fascist thing, but the Soviets, the Chinese, um, the East Germans, the entire uh, Iron Curtain Eastern Bloc had secret police everywhere, and they were just as active as the Gestapo, right? Um, you know, they all murder a ton of people. Uh, you know, the Soviets and Chinese murdered... Uh, their own tens of millions of people, just as the fascists of Western Europe did, and they all start big wars. So the idea that Americans are sitting here bickering over, like, 
you know, one form of totalitarianism versus another, rather than all getting together and saying, maybe we shouldn't have totalitarianism, right? Maybe the thing that we love about this country, even though we're griping at each other so much, um, is that we should try to protect our liberal institutions. Right? The fact that there is even that argument going on is is a big sign of like what's wrong with us, right? Because uh, one type of totalitarianism looks enough like the jerseys that we wear for our sports team that we're kind of, you know, we try to like forgive it a little bit and we try to like throw all of the attention on the other form of totalitarianism. It's just insane, right? And if you find yourself participating in that, you need to like take a second and think, why am I doing this? Like, why am I, why am I only going after fascism or communism? And why am I kind of like tacitly, quietly, almost trying to defend fascism or communism? Um, because it's not, you know, the other team's version of extreme totalitarianism. It's just silly. So, you know, the only big difference between fascism and communism is that fascism is nationalistic, right? So it defines itself in terms of a certain kind of people and a certain language and a certain culture and often um, ethnic or genetic lines. And communism is internationalistic, right? It's this idea that we just have to destroy a certain class of people, the the wealthy people, landowners, factory owners, um, and we can make this a kind of a global thing. Um, that's the big difference, right? Some slightly different ideology. Um, and we, anyway, we talked about this in our episode, Nazis, Communists, and Free Speech, about how we really shouldn't be looking at too much of a difference here, right? And so this whole episode that we just had on, um, you know, American fascism in the 1930s, we also have to remember that communism was surprisingly popular in the 1960s and 70s, right? Now, it was among a bunch of, like, hippies, so they weren't going to do much about it because they were too stoned all the time to really, you know, form a communist revolution, but it was a popular idea, and Marx's thinking has gotten, you know, deep into academia. Now, Marx was a philosopher on many things, including economics, um, and including, uh, you know, kind of structural politics, and the forms, of course, the big caveat here is the forms of communism that rose weren't necessarily Marxist, right? So he just kind of inspired them, um, much as, uh, you know, you can't really directly blame Nietzsche for uh, German fascism either. But... Um, but the idea that only one of these forms um, of totalitarianism, that being fascism, has been popular in the United States is also a bit silly. So the bigger point here is that both or either of these forms of totalitarianism could come about when there's a small group of people with enough power to do whatever they want, right? And for what I'm sure feel at the time uh, to them, because everyone's the hero of their own story, what feels to them like entirely reasonable reasons they decide they're going to use that power to get some stuff done. And by the way, we need to get some people out of the way in order to really accomplish it, right? And we already have that kind of thinking going on in the United States right now that, you know, if only like, you know, from my friends on the left, like if only Mitch McConnell, but also Joe Manchin, who's a Democrat anyway, were out of our way, like we could do the things that we want to do, right? And that if people were out of our way, we could do the things we want to do rather than okay, we need to form a big enough coalition here and like get enough people on board to vote for our thing that it's going to pass, right? If that sort of, sort of thinking um, starts to dominate our, uh, our politics, then we're, we're toast, right? Becomes, it become, because it becomes a pure power game. And it's not to say that the Republicans haven't contributed to that. If they're just going to, you know, if they're going to just vote against whatever the Democrats do, no matter what, Right, including, for example, raising the debt ceiling um, to pay for the debt that was incurred during the Trump years. Right, like it's the Democrats having this "people need to get out of our way" mindset didn't come out of nowhere. 
right? And the Republicans, you know, and and we've talked about this before, but the Republicans like deciding they're going to be, um, you know, complete hypocrites about debt um, and decide they're going to play brinksmanship with the debt ceiling with the Democrats, like that's not new either. And it didn't come out of a vacuum, right? All this stuff has kind of been spiraling out of control, sometimes asymmetrically, sometimes lopsidedly, sometimes like a pendulum. But all of this stuff has been spiraling out of control for decades now. And we've got to this point where, you know, you have people saying, well, wouldn't it be nice if just certain people got out of the way? Or wouldn't it be nice if we just hung Mike Pence for being a traitor to Donald Trump personally? Again, not traitor to the United States, but a traitor to Donald Trump personally, uh, because we need this guy to be in charge to protect us from the Democrats, even though all he does is whine. And what we, the thinking we have right now that's so dangerous is that we feel like our liberal institutions don't work and that they can't fix what's going on in the United States right now. And when you have a crisis that's big enough, like when you have liberal institutions, you know, these, these uh, legislative bodies in particular, that are just ineffective, and even amidst major crises like the coronavirus, right, are largely often unable to act, um, then you're in trouble because a crisis, a big enough crisis, is going to come along, and at some point people are going to demand like, okay, we just need a straw man to to take charge here and, and decide what to do. Um, the ancient Romans actually, you know, the, the Roman Republic actually had six month long dictatorships for just this kind of thing, right? This is where Cincinnatus comes from. It wouldn't work today, but the idea was that the Romans would say, okay, you know, the Senate and such, they move too slow. And if there's a major crisis, in particular a foreign war that we're not doing well in, we just need to give someone complete power for six months. Like they can literally just be like, this person, you, they die. And you, the law says that they're the dictator, that person dies. And anything they do as a dictator is considered um, uh, unpunishable after they're a dictator, right? To give them the free hand to do what they need to do. Um, so this was like this, you know, wild new, this wild idea that was like really interesting and, and you know, in some ways could be very clever, but it wouldn't work today because nobody would, we wouldn't be able to get enough people to trust one person um, to be that dictator. And also uh, it probably doesn't jibe well with a lot of liberal ideas that we have, which are good ideas. But the Romans, even though they had this dictatorship, they also lost their republic because the Senate and Assembly consistently failed to deal with various crises that led to civil wars, and they didn't appoint dictators to deal with them, right? So, you know, you still need the Senate to say, okay, we're going to have a dictator now. It still needs to be functional, even if it's slow. And the problem was that in Rome, it was non-functional, and civil wars broke out. Um, you know, if hopefully you all have read Mike Duncan's The Storm Before the Storm, you at least get the the colorful um, idea of what happened there. And so we talked about this in a number of episodes, but including in the episode, the, uh, the effectiveness of political violence in history, right? What we found in the effectiveness, you know, we were responding to the punch Nazis idea. And it turns out that if you have a bunch of street violence where people are running around, punch each other and hitting each other, by the way, it never ends with punching. Right, like it was uh, the punch Nazis thing was so dumb and it was so naive because you run around, you start running around punching people and then they hit you with sticks and then you feel bad. There's like, oh, they escalated to sticks, so now we're gonna escalate, right? And it becomes like a big street brawl and it's all because you decided to start punching people. Um, and that big endless street brawl was going on in, say, the Weimar Republic in Germany, and the people said like, holy smokes, we need someone to like put a lid on this. And uh, guess who became that person, right? Or in France, it was the same thing. Like the Republic was going 
or excuse me, the yeah, the Republic was was kind of cruising along. That first Republic, it had a lot of problems, um, but they had gotten rid of the king. They had a Republic. Um, they'd thrown off feudalism. All this stuff happened nonviolently, um, or largely nonviolently, and uh, then the street fighting just got so bad and like you know and you had you had the the state kind of like repressing um you know counter-revolutions catholic counter-revolutions and stuff like that because the the republic was too oppressive but you had this whole like we're gonna run around set up guillotines and start taking people's heads off thing um and it was when the violence got so bad during this revolution that uh napoleon came in right so the guillotine like the guillotine led to napoleon because regular french people were like oh my god this is horrible Right. I know people that like celebrate the guillotine. I know people that like, you know, like there are sometimes left wing protesters that like show up with guillotines at protests. Right. What are they doing? They're like threatening the rich to like have their heads cut off um, in this like weird neo Jacobian rewrite of the French Revolution, which is like because like the guillotine wasn't the poor chopping off the, he- the heads of the rich anyway. To, like if you've ever read anything about the, the French Revolution ever. Right. You would know that it was largely the government chopping the heads off of political enemies um, was the actual guillotine. Um, but but the street violence that was going down um, and the, the political violence that was going down from the state as well to try to, like, you know, get a lid on it and try to create their own form of order, um, you know, led to people saying, like, you know what, F it, we'll just let Napoleon be in charge because someone needs to do something. And great, you know, there you had, you had the end of, at least the temporary end of all political freedoms, you had a dictator in charge. So we talked about this at length um, in that episode. And the takeaway from it is that at some point you have these crises that occur. Often they're street violence. um, But generally they're when your liberal institution can't function. And so we've got kind of like two dangerous trends going on in the United States. One of them is the propensity for people to at least say we're going to use violence to solve our problems. And the other one is the breakdown of the effectiveness of our liberal institutions. These are, of course, tied. They're not independent. So I am very worried about totalitarianism rising in the United States in my lifetime, which is horrifying to say, but it's true. Um, or at least that my feelings on it are true. My fear is, true, is, is real. And, um, you know, one of the things we need to keep in mind is that totalitarian regimes can only rise with a lot of popular support. Um, they never, they really have, rarely have total support. So like Lenin, Mao, Hitler, Mussolini, they all rose to power on minority support, but it was a large minority. Um, you know, they need people to like, you know, grab guns and fight for them, or they need, or they at the very least need enough people to be willing to stand aside and not immediately rise up to, to defeat them, right? Like Hitler was a great version of, like, great example of, like, had a bunch of, had most, many Germans stood up and were like, whoa, 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 not, none of this. We're going to, like, grab our guns and, like, storm the Reichstag here and get rid of them, right? He wouldn't have taken power. Um, but they all rose to power on minority support um, and, and, and a large portion of people being willing to stand aside and make it happen. And what gives them that support, or at least assent, is people checking out of the current system, not wanting to support the current system, not wanting to fight for the current system, and, and many people deciding they need a strong man for whatever cause. Um, and the desire to like violently get rid of the old thing or, or extra politically get rid of the old thing and bring about something new in order to get stuff done, right? This is like definition of revolutionary thinking. 
where you go like, yeah, someone can just like decide the rules aren't the rules anymore. The laws aren't the laws anymore. I'm sure it will be temporary and I'm sure we'll rewrite a great set of laws. But for this period, you know, we're, I'm fine with those being suspended, right? Or I'm fine with this group of people because they tend to agree with me on my political outcomes that I want, my political ambitions. I'm fine giving them extra legal power to do what they want. That's revolutionary thinking, right? A revolution is when you suspend the current way, the current regime of doing things and get rid of it in a way that's not the way that was written down in the Constitution about how to change things. And that revolutionary thinking is getting more and more popular in the United States. It freaks me out. And so for that reason, um, in the next episode, I actually want to talk about revolutions through history and how they turned out. Um, and because I think that a lot of people who are excited about revolutionary thinking in the U.S. right now, right, about, like, for example, you know, but trying to put Trump back in power by God or, um, you know, or otherwise uh, trying to do away with a lot of the institutions that we have, um, again, in extra legal ways, not reform, but revolution, um, you know, a lot of them have not really done their homework. And um, that that excitement is something that, you know, look, they're not going to listen to this episode, but you will. Um, that excitement is something we need to to dampen as much as we can. Um, or, you know, look, if you're an accelerationist, uh, maybe you believe that you just need to go through the crappy parts before you can get to the good ones. Who knows? But until then, um, don't let the pundits or me do the thinking for you. Pause and reconsider. This is Eric signing off. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.